Hello and welcome to Rasslin' Memories on Pioneer 90.1 KSRQ, online, radionorthland.org, and we can be found, you can listen to us on TuneIn. And thank you for tuning in. I'm Glenn Broggett, along with my co-host, way down there deep in the heart of Texas, a man who today, admittingly, is going to get himself a good education on the American Wrestling Association. Let's bring it down to the deep in the heart of Texas for the grizzled vet, Mike McCurdy. Mike, my friend, are you ready? Are you ready for our guest today? I am ready for our guest today, man. Um, I enjoyed the book. I got a chance to read that. I really enjoyed the book. So I really enjoyed learning more about the AWA, like you said. Um, as we were talking before we went on the air, uh-huh. my exposure kind of happened just as Larry Zabisco became the AWA world champion. So I'm, mean, as you said, the very tail end of it all. You know, I was the Team Challenge Series. I was... You know, the trooper and I believe DJ Peterson were the <laughs> Yeah, you kind of got on the last yeah. legs, man. That <laughs> thing was about ready to go, uh, yeah, go out and take, 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 take a trip out behind the barn. Unfortunately, yeah, yeah. But, but, I, but thanks to the WWE Network, I have seen you know the the his the at the AWA, and I have had a chance to go back. I don't want the listeners to think I don't know anything, but uh, well, my initial exposure. Well, we weren't going to insinuate that you didn't know anything. It's just that uh, you, you mentioned how you, when you got you know got ESPN, it was just at the latter period. For me, it was uh, around 1982. I was a young kid. I was like, so oh, gosh, let me get the math here right. I was about a six-year-old kid. I fell in love with the AWA. A lot of it had to do with guys like Hulk Hogan was there, and you know, I loved the Mad Dog, uh, Mad Dog Vachon, of course, and the Baron. Those guys were like just large in life the high flyers i mean this stuff just takes me back and our guest today has put out one main event what hell of a book this could be main event all across the territory all through the circuit uh it's a wonderful look back with photos and stories from the american wrestling association the name of the book is my ringside seat to the awa and this gal boy oh boy you want to check out a book with some great history good stories i like the firsthand stories and stuff that she shares not only uh giving us these really cool pictures but this is just the ultimate love letter to the awa from a fan who was there and and it was really more than a fan to a lot of the guys uh, she became a really good friend and confidant and she's still taking pictures today and it's wonderful. She's taking some time out of her busy schedule, moving and or shaking. Joyce Poshton, thank you so much for showing up here and uh, being our guest today on Wrestling Memories. Well, thanks very much, Mike and Glenn. I'm just so happy to be here and, and I'm always happy to talk AWA wrestling and share the memories. Uh, I've been so happy with the response so far to my book. You know, I, initially I thought, oh, does anybody really remember the old days of the AWA and are they going to really care about that and almost to a person uh, that's uh, seen the book uh, they've just said that's almost like my story and I remember those those days and I love this and I'm so glad somebody finally did this so I, I'm really I'm really heartened by it yeah, you know, and I've been seeing and been hearing you out there on the circuit. You've been getting some some really good appearances in on some podcasts. Of course, you did uh, the AWA podcast with with Mick Karsh, uh, which was a very and Polish Joe, of course. And <laughs> the, you know, those guys, those three are just characters. The host they is they are. Well. I've John- known, the, known Mick for a long time, and the other two are are good cohorts for him. Absolutely. So you made it on there, which was just a natural. I mean, you came on even before it kind of was a bit of a tease about this book, but you were there. And then once the book came out, I noticed that uh, 
the day I got the book, I, I got in the mail, which I thank you so very much for. Uh, I, I uh, put a picture up to, to say I got it in the mail. And uh, one of the guys who actually shared the picture uh, was Bob Smith. Bob Smith, of course, a pro wrestling illustrated fame. Uh, he's done some great writing. He's a musician as well. And he has a very cool old school podcast. And hearing you on there was very cool. I mean, this is going beyond the territories now. You're, you're beyond the, the uh, driving distance to the, uh, to the old shows here, Joyce. Yeah, no kidding. I was blown away when Bob contacted me and said he was interested. I was like, "You do know it's about the AWA, right?" And you're <laughs> you're in New York, and and uh, but he was uh, very much old school, and you know, being around Pro Wrestling Illustrated, he knew he knew the pictures and uh, he knew the stories, and uh, he was very interesting to talk to. So I'm trying not to, you know, over overshare my 15 minutes of fame here, but gotta you gotta listen when people can and i've reached a lot of people that i never thought i would and you know with the way people move around the country nowadays uh it's surprising the people out east that say oh i grew up in the midwest and i knew about the awa so it's yeah. great and you were able kind of to to uh kind of uh pass along and get make some uh make some nice sales for this book uh through your various circuit of, of appearances that you make as a photographer and as a guest and of course uh uh to the to the tragos uh fez reunion down there in waterloo uh there were some other places you've been to as well this year uh, i mean that is just must be just great to have these people come up and just be so happy to see this book again we're talking about the awa uh, and it's a gone but never forgotten at least up here in, in these parts but to be able to go to those uh, conventions and, and meet up with uh, not only the fans but some of the fellow wrestlers and having this book out now this is just another uh, feather in the hat yeah I really I mean this is my first and only book as far as I plan but and I've been working on it as you mentioned for uh, about two and a half years uh, and there were times when I didn't know if I would get it done but this last year I really made a, a concerted effort to get it done in time for the Waterloo Hall of Fame because I thought that, you know, with being in the heart of Iowa and, and the, the Midwest and AWA territory, a lot of people come down for, from Wisconsin or Minnesota. And so I thought that would be the perfect place to, to test it. And if it doesn't sell there, you know, I don't know <laughs> that I might, be, might just take my books and go home. But uh, I was uh, blown away again when I, I talked to the, the museum about getting a table and said uh, I'm going to sell, try to sell a book and um, and it was done. I was so happy that I got it done in time for that. It was cutting pretty close. Uh, so and then uh, I, I think I sold like uh, uh, over fifty books and got orders for twenty five more. And then ever since then I've sold over a hundred. So it's it's way beyond what my expectations were for it. Mm -hmm. Now this book now originally I mean you have all these great photos that you were kind of the original was the original aim to be just a photo book and then the stories kind of ended up uh, in you know basically uh, finding their way to and you came to the realization that you know what this would kind of be a nice little companion to go along with these photos because this really does tell the story of your fandom and, and the story of the AWA from the you know from the 70s you know through the Nick Bockwinkel Vern Gagne years into the 80s where we're moving up into the whole Hogan years and then all the way to the ultimate demise of the promotion. I mean, you have amassed quite a collection of photos through the years. So was there a lot of talking? You know, was it just going to be a strictly a photo book? Originally, it was going to be. Yeah, uh, they 
I had looked at some other uh, folks who had done photography books, and uh, I knew I couldn't afford to do like a color, full color coffee table book. And I didn't think my books were, or my photos were near as good as some who have. Certainly not not at the level of uh, a George Napolitano. But I did think the the fans would would get a kick out of seeing them. And and the thing is, I hadn't really done that much with my photos before um, because. Um, there were a lot of great photographers in the AWAs over in the AWA over the years, and I, I had been in contact with uh, Norm Keitzer and Jim Melby about uh, my photos sometimes, and being willing to to share them with them. But um, it seemed like every time I sent some in, they they I was either too late or they didn't get used. It was a something they already had photos of that feud, so very little that I w- that was a, original, but. Uh, when I when I so when I started thinking about well maybe I could put these in a book rather than, I didn't really want to sell them because right now it's so easy to to copy them onto the internet and sure. then you kind of lose track of who's got what and who did them originally I I know I know I'm not the only one who could have taken these photos but I do kind of have a fondness for them and I like to see that yet you know, I like to see photographers get credit for their work. So um, anyway, I uh, talked to a couple of guys who had done books, and they kind of yeah indicated there's a real limited market for photo books. Uh, so I thought, well, you know, not much has been done about the stories of the AWA. I mean, everybody knows about the demise, as you mentioned, sure. and um, how sad it was, and really uh, the demise of all the territories. Uh, the AWA was kind of the first one to go, but uh, it just uh, seemed like nobody really talked that much about the glory days of the ADBA, and that goes back even before my time into the 60s. But the 70s and the early 80s were pretty great, too. And I thought, thought um, you know, I've got photos for each of those years, and may, maybe I'll start telling some of the stories that I remember from this. So it, it, it just kind of evolved from there, and uh, I'm really pleased with how it turned out. And it seems like a lot of the people have the same story. I, I, they all say, you know... I, I caught it on TV one day and started watching it, and I was hooked, and uh, I begged my parents to take me to the matches, and, and they did, and I just was a fan for life, and I never missed an episode, and I loved this feud or that feud, regardless of who their favorite was. They, they, uh, they had a real fondness for wrestling and, and the matches that they had been to. Oh, for sure. And, uh, of course, I mean, I talked about uh, when I started watching was in 1982, and I got to catch a few of the really good, a few of the good years uh, before things kind of, oh, kind, of kind of went down. I mean, there was some really good stuff. I mean, with only you know the the Vern Nick retirement, Vern's retirement match, of course the introduction of, of Hulk Hogan, so many great things. But what was it that got you hooked? Though you talk, we talk about, and it's a mutually shared story about how pro wrestling, what how it affected you, or what, you know, what, when did you first watch? For me, it was uh, having older siblings, and I also had a grandpa that loved to watch it so uh, we'd go visit them sometimes on Sundays and I'd already watched the Saturday night show because we used to get it out of Winnipeg, Manitoba so I'd watch the Saturday night show and then I'd go sometimes we'd visit my grandparents about an hour away and we'd watch the, the replay of it with my grandpa and boy we the AWA was like, I mean, we had, my cousins were always talking it up. And what was it for you? I mean, it was, it was the AWA for the, my first time I think it was Hulk Hogan and the guys like and Mad Dog Vachon, those were the guys that just popped it for me but what was it for you 
Yeah, it was uh, uh, Mad Dog Bashan was the first one I saw. Also, Crusher. I, I guess I liked the guys that had the real deep, gravelly voices. <laughs> <laughs> they they seemed to really um, be memorable in my in my experience. And then uh, also Doctor X, uh, Dick Byer, who uh, you know was in still in the territory at that time. This was I'm talking '69 or '70 when I was a kid and watching this, and uh, so. I, I really felt like that I had found something special there, and uh, it was, it was just something I wanted to see every week. And I, more than the matches, I liked the interviews. Uh, and I know that's hard for some some of the athletes to believe. I mean, I liked watching the matches, but that but was all part I, of the sizzle, though. That was oh, part yeah. of the thing because the matches, wait for the matches. Yeah, that was the for, sell, for the, the setups. And then if it was you know any special kind of matchup where it wasn't just a a jobber. Uh, it was a uh, uh, you know uh, two two competitive guys. So you knew something special was going to happen, or it was really going to be in a, a heated match. And then they'd go and uh, talk to uh, on the interview to Roger Kent or Marty O'Neill and say, "I want this guy." You know, anywhere I can get him, and and then Wally, Wally Carbo would come out and say, "I I, I got the match set up," and. Oh boy, did I want to go to the uh, arena and see that! You know? <laughs> oh, but, but I begged my parents, and they said no. None of my none of my parents or none of my siblings were wrestling fans. I did find out my grandmother watched it in the fifties, but uh, I, I I never really got to talk to her about it. I, I found that out later. Sure. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but it. Um, I didn't care. I, I just still wanted to watch it myself, mm-hmm. and I, I begged and begged, and I finally got to go to my first match for my 13th birthday, and uh, it was every bit as great as I thought it was going to be. I got to see Larry Hennig. I, actually, Hercules Cortez was on that card, uh, Red Bastine, uh, Lars Anderson, um, so Bull Bolinski, some of, some of the... You early got, greats. You got some great characters on that that card. Yeah, well, early early Don Morocco and oh. uh, so it, it was a lot of fun. But uh, that was the one and only time my mom took me to wrestling, and she absolutely hated it. She hated it before, and then when she took me for my birthday, she said, "We're never going to this again." So, mm-hmm. luck, luckily, my sister was easier to talk. She she liked me a lot, and she would she, even though she was much older, she would. Uh, she would try to help me out because it was kind of a bonding experience with us. And my mom would pay for my sister's ticket, and she'd be willing to go. So, oh, I couldn't wait to go. And, but but we could only go in the summertime when when it, when school wasn't in session. So, mm-hmm. but oh, I waited for those nights, and they were just just they still are burned into my memory. And and then I became a Bachwinkle fan. And, oh, then uh, all bets uh, are off. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and from yeah. there, really, uh, from, from Nick, I mean, what started a fan ended up being to, to be this this friendship. I, I mean, but let's yeah. talk a little bit about before that. Let's talk about where you the shows. Where where would you go to go see this? Because we got we didn't really mention your location here yet in the interview. But so down near this is down near the Quad Cities area. So where what were some of the venues? Um, if originally they uh, did the the um, during the the winter and the fall months they would uh, be at Wharton Fieldhouse, which is uh, across the river in Moline, one of the Quad Cities. But during the summer months they had an outdoor. There there was really no indoor venue that that was big enough to hold it. The high schools weren't open to it really, open to to a connection with it. But uh, they would have it at the the ball field. 
and uh, set up the, the ring uh, on home plate and then the fans would sit in the stands or down uh, chairs around ringside down on the field and that's where I saw it first this was down there and the, the uh, wrestlers would sit in the dugout and watch the matches you could see them the whole time you were there the, it was like just like their own little wrestling ball team <laughs> but uh, and then I, uh, I didn't know it at the time that they would do this whole circuit until I found out about wrestling magazines but Peoria and Rockford are only about two hours away from me, and uh, um, then later on, Chicago and, and Milwaukee became possibilities, but those are about three or four hours away from me. But primarily, at first, I was only going to the, the Quad Cities, and then uh, there would every once in a while while they were down here, they would uh, have a local high school match at a, a smaller town that was about uh, you know, half an hour to an hour away. Sure, like a spot show uh, type like of thing. Like a spot show, right, yeah. exactly. Uh, but, and they wouldn't really announce the lineup, but they, on the interviews they would say, and, uh, you know, and fans don't, you know, if you're going to Warden Fieldhouse on such and such a night, don't forget that the wrestlers are going to be in Galesburg the next night or in Burlington, Iowa the next night. And, oh, you know, I, if I could have, I would have gone to every single one of those cards. <laughs> and, uh, well, I mean, the new, the modern fan just can't really comprehend just how how cool the territories were and how many opportunities were and how for these guys to wrestle along these circuits on the major towns within the territory, but also these spot towns along the way and the impact they had on, on, on fans who tuned into the television every week. Yeah, and the great thing was you would, you would see that a consistent storyline at, at each of the matches. Yeah. Yeah. Nowadays, if you go to a, a major league match uh, or somewhere in a, across the country, you'll see one set of matches, and maybe you won't see that group again for another year, and it, it'll be a whole different set of feuds. You know, you can't really follow it within your own backyard like you could then, and you, you would get the whole setup. Like maybe in June, you'd get the first match of two guys and then in july you'd get the return match where the hero says oh this guy cheated i want another chance at him and then he maybe he cheats again and said okay I, this time i want a no disqualification match or i want a, a cage match you know and you'd see the whole series of um, matches and you really got to follow the storyline and see con consistency on the cards and see the people that are actually uh on, that you're seeing on tv for for a significant amount of time. I mean, yes, the territory changes change based on uh, however long a certain wrestler was in the in the territory, or however long their contract was at that time. But um, it, it was great to see see a series of matches for for however long they wanted to build it up. Mm -hmm. Now, what I mean, you're you're a fan. You're going to the shows. When was when was the decision made to bring the camera and, and this kind of start this uh, path that you took, which uh, went through many years and many great photos? But let's go back to the original uh, bit of inspiration and what got you to go, what gave you that courage? Because this isn't easy, whether it's for a man or a woman, to go up there and start taking these photos. I mean, there's so many things you got to kind of mind yourself with, and, and especially oh, during absolutely. the Cape Fabera. Right, right. Um, I guess because I, w I, I want... Uh, my first thing was autographs, but uh, then I then I wanted to see about getting a picture with some of the wrestlers uh, and, and Nick Bachman. And Doctor X had left before I could get um, a picture with him. But uh, the first time I had a Instamatic camera with me, I, I took some pictures of 
with Nick Bockwinkle begrudgingly in, in his opinion, but those, and those are in the book, but uh, it, then I started thinking, yeah, I saw a lot of matches between Bockwinkle and uh, uh, Vern Gagne at the time, and um, he also Vern Gagne against Ray Stevens, Vern Gagne against Baron Von Raschke. I mean, you uh, you had these guys, and I mean, they were at the top of the top yeah. of their game. I mean, oh. Ray Stevens, my God, there. I mean, th- it's an unfortunate thing that there isn't a lot of film available oh, of Ray in those early days because Ray. Um, not only was a great wrestler, but he also had a lot of things that were kind of uh, taken from his him as influenced by some of the other future stars. Yeah, well, you know that was he was the the reason for the disqualification off the top rope because he you know broke uh, Doctor X's leg during that <laughs> angle on TV, and uh, so. But yet, that didn't stop him from uh, when the being, when the referee's back was turned from doing the bombs away. And, and he was great. I mean, you could just see it in his face how much he really loved it when he would like gouge somebody's eyes or throw them outside the ring. He he had a real daredevil aspect to him, and uh, he, he was a lot of fun to watch. And uh, and I think what you saw on TV was really how his personality was. Yeah, I mean my. Uh... I was out in San Francisco. Uh, one of my aunt, grandma's sisters, actually, in the 60s, uh, lived out in the Frisco area and was kind of hanging out with bikers and biker gangs and stuff and said, yeah, she hung out with Ray a couple of times. He was pretty fearless <laughs> out there racing bikes uh, with, with biker gang members. He was pretty, pretty cool, pretty much the breeze, as she said. Yeah, I didn't get to hang around with them much because really, um, you know, as much as he and Nick were, were partners in the ring, uh, they really were not the same personality. I mean, they complimented each other, but uh, Nick didn't really hang out that much with him outside the ring, in my experience, anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I I liked Nick best first, but I, I mean, I didn't. Dis- I was happy to be a, a fan of the whole Heenan family, but uh, <laughs> I didn't really get to know Ray that much, other than just what I saw in the ring. Or but it was just... a different story, though, when it came to Bobby Heenan, though. I mean, oh. not only, like, well, you had a good good thing with Nick, you mean develop a good friendship. Bobby Heenan was another one of those guys uh, that you had a chance <laughs> to get to know and through travels and stuff and helping out. I mean, this guy, uh, I mean, I listened to a recent interview with his daughter, and I mean, she the apple didn't fall too far from the tree as far as wit goes, but <laughs> Bobby is just one of the most quick-witted I mean he could have been a stand-up comedian uh, even in the ring thing if he decided to just been a wrestler full-time not just a manager wrestler he could have been a top of any territory because he had it he was a guy that had it a lot of people think of him just as a manager but he was good in the ring he could work as a manager in the ring during the matches but also if he wanted to be a straight-up wrestler outside of the manager gimmick he could have done that too he was very talented a lot of people discredited some of his or not discredit but they forget how good he was in the ring yeah he really was uh it, you know and nobody could at least at that time could garner as much heat as he did you know he really knew how to get the fans into it he would uh, you know s- stick his hands in his pocket like he was getting a foreign object out and he knew exactly how to get the fans mad about it and uh, or he would you know insult them in some way and uh but he he didn't do it loud and that uh, he would he would do it in a a way that it was um, very much like a, a, a stand-up comedian, like you said. Uh, and I, uh, if if any of the fans remember Don Rickles, I think he 
he had a way of um, insulting you that just made you laugh. You know, yeah. he, it was like an honor to be insulted by Bobby. Mr. Warm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but Bobby was uh, very much a loner at first, uh, and uh, he uh, talk about a guy that worked his way up in the in the business. You know, he started in Bruiser's territory, like as a young teenager carrying Bruiser's bag, and then kind of worked his way into being a a manager there and uh, but he really took off in the AWA and got some really good guys to manage and he had he definitely had the gift of gab and, and uh, some really funny things uh, i mentioned in the book that when when i was around him i could not stop laughing cuz he just one one li- a, a one liner run right after the other to, and you just and those interviews, too, with both him and Nick, I mean, because Nick was such a great uh, interview. I mean, the guy with his uh, his $10 million words sometimes. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, with Bobby, there was such a great contrast, but it was also they worked so well together. Uh, Nick, the Bachwinkle Brigade, Mick Karsh, how in the heck did this? I mean, I knew that... Uh, you know, this this fan club had uh, quite a bunch of supporters of Bach, but how did you, was it just a simple case of seeing it like in a newsletter? How did this whole thing come together? Because people, again, uh, some of the kids today got to realize this wasn't in, this wasn't easy access all the time. This wasn't the internet access. I mean, there was a lot of things involving a lot of letter writing, a lot of different things. So tell us a little bit about how you ended up associated with the Bachwinkle Brigade and became one of the... I guess a, a key asset member of a great little fraternity of <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, for whatever that gets you. Yeah. <laughs> As Nick put it, one of the chosen few. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't come with any money or No, 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 it's prestige. It's all about the prestige, <laughs> yeah, right? right? It's, it's prestige only, <laughs> whatever that means. Um, anyway, yeah, um, once I had a wrestling magazine, uh, I, I didn't even know wrestling magazines existed. That's how little the promotion uh, they did of the, the connection because they did, the promote the promoters didn't really want fans to know that there were um, matches happening in other parts of the country and de- even not even in their same parts of the of the promotion they didn't want you to know that there this same match was happening in uh, in your area up north as it was down in Davenport you, they wanted you to think that that was the one and only place that these two guys were going to meet oh, yeah. so um, so it, uh, once I found out that there were prog- programs and, and magazines, I was really hungry for more news about it. And so, and then they had the uh, all of the magazines had this the fan club section, mm-hmm. and uh, it was pretty well done. I thought, and they would they only put in the ones that were they thought they were pretty reliable people. But yeah, you had to you had to write a a note to them with a self-addressed stamped envelope, if you can believe it. And there was no uh, email or, or Facebook or anything like that back then. would have been a lot easier but uh, to keep the cafe, but it was great, you know, because you really thought you were in on something special, you know. And I and I really uh, thought, oh, I'm going to be in, in the Bachwinkle Brigade. Uh, now Nick will pay attention to me and he'll know that I'm a fan. <laughs> yeah, that it took a still took a long time before he uh, yeah yeah he just played that that part for um, a very long time where the fans mean nothing to me they're eight to five humanoids you know, I don't uh, I could care less you're all white white soccer's you're <laughs> you're beneath me uh, and so that that's the way he played it and he didn't he just acted. The the one time I got I got an autograph from him, he said that I had uh, 
because I had a t-shirt on with him. Uh, he said I had worked hard enough to deserve an autograph, but uh, <laughs> but uh, that was it. Uh, and then uh, it was kind of like, but can't we talk a while? And he was like, Watching the matches here, kid. You know. Oh, oh yeah, you got to, you got to, yeah. you got to maintain the gimmick. Yeah, so so he let you know that I, we're done talking now, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so uh, that's why I, I have to laugh when I hear people who were who come up and came up and talked to him at CAC, and he was so accessible and willing to talk about a match <laughs> or a feud, and they all said, "What a nice guy! What what a great guy!" He was so willing to talk. I was like. You have no idea what it was like in the old days. I mean, I mean, I'm happy for them that they got that experience, but it's like that for fans in the old days. That took a long time to break through that wall, and even at the conventions, he would uh, act like, "Well, I hope you all realize you're getting something special here. I don't just do this uh, you know, for, for the fun of it. I, I don't know how Mick Card shocked me into this, but you know." Uh, I guess you guys are getting the thrill of your life. (laughs) I love it. I love it. We loved it, too. And, and, and I mean, this was another thing, again, with with networking. I mean, Mick Karsh Mm -hmm. with the Bachwinkle Brigade. Through that, I mean, and and through some of the wrestling shows, you really kind of got to meet an array of people, people that ended up becoming really good friends, people that ended up helping out when it came to traveling to other uh, parts of, of the territory. Just how I mean, it's amazing. I mean, nowadays everybody's got internet and all of that, but I mean, it, I think it was just so much more grassroots, so much more real. Real is the deal. I mean, you yeah, got. Definitely. I mean, I mean, the fans and friends you made. I mean, I mean, the some that are still. You know, I, I bet you still connect with a lot of a good portion of some oh, of these I do. friends. So many of them have been lifelong friends, and uh, it's it's we had just had that connection and it's that's something you always remember and I, I do have to say uh, how uh, how helpful um in setting all of that up that Alderusha was I, I you know he was a the producer at the TV studio but he also got involved in uh, uh the office with Vern Gagne and Wally Carbo and then uh, he also went out and um uh refereed on on the territory Vern would send him out on the road a lot of times and uh so he would be instrumental in setting up a lot of the Bakwiko conventions so that we could go to the TV tapings and then uh and get connected with Nick but then he also uh, I we would see him down in uh, Davenport Peoria uh, refereeing a lot of the matches and he was very willing to talk to us and a really nice guy and I've I've talked to him uh He's still around. He's, yeah. uh, I believe, in his mid eighties, and uh, I've talked to him on the phone many times. And he's really great guy, and uh, remembers those days fondly as well. Yeah, I mean, now, and of course, you know his. You know, we. I grew up, you know, watching his uh, his son Gary be the wear yeah, the, the right. stripes of the ring. <laughs> Yeah, like father, like son. Oh yeah, and I mean, I mean, a lot of I mean, Al Darusha's role in in the AWA sometimes doesn't get enough. I get enough ink, I think, because he did a lot of that work when it came to those those shows, the spot shows, other things, and even behind the scenes with the television and stuff. I mean, we see, we remember a lot with Vern and you know Wally Carbo, but I think Al Darusha, I think definitely uh, should get his flowers as well. Well, and as you know, like. Fern wasn't always the easiest guys. He's one of the easiest guys to get along with, mm-hmm. and I think people don't realize how much of a mediator both Wally and Alderusha were between the the wrestlers that were there and Vern Gagne. So, 
Al was one of the few guys that Vern would listen to uh, about, yeah, this might not work on TV, or this this will work, or I'll talk to the guys and I'll get it straightened out, you know, and we'll, we'll work it out. And so he was really very well respected by the AWA guys and, and was a, a good, good uh, compliment to the AWA staff. Mm-hmm. I know when I went to my first show, my first spot show in, in uh, 1987, it was uh, at a gym at a nearby town. And he was the guy that handled the announcing. He was also the guy that had to crack the whip on a few of the kids who were getting up and hanging on the ring. Oh, I yeah. Mean, he yeah, always, they didn't like that. <laughs> no. You, kids better get down. You might get an injury. He just, just well, so, it's funny because, you know, you mentioned about uh, getting into the photography. The, very, the first time that I thought I was going to be allowed to be at ringside to shoot pictures uh the illinois state commission guy who was they they had a deal where they could referee two of the matches on on the four or five card thing and uh he wouldn't let me uh um be at right at ringside because he said no she'll just get hurt she won't know to get out of the way in time and so so they they uh, tried to look out for the. Re- I don't know whether they were looking out more out for me or for the wrestlers. Probably for the wrestlers to make sure I, they did. They didn't get hurt if I didn't get out of the way in time. But. Sure, and you know Al Alderusha. I mean, good guy for wrestling, but also I heard he he won many of those Captain Kangaroo lookalike contests in his day. <laughs> You know, you look back at some of this, the fashions of the, the yeah. 70s now, and, the, and it's almost comical to see the the big uh, pockets on the suits and that, and, and the hairstyles. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. he did look a lot like that. <laughs> oh, we're talking with Joyce Poshton here on this edition of, of Rasslin' Memories, and before I hand over the, the, the microphone to my co-host, get him uh, some, some ring time, uh, I want to talk about uh, the first, I mean, you talk about some of the shows in your area where you grew up. Uh, could you remember the first time uh, you started coming up to Minnesota? I mean, oh, it wasn't all the time, but can you remember some of those times? Because not only you were there during the AWA, but through the years after, you you were going to various things, whether it be uh, uh, an event that the AWA had or uh, Kenny J's histiocytosis uh, benefits. But talk about that first time getting up here in, in Minnesota. I mean, from from your area. I mean, you worked. You've done some shows up to Iowa and Iowa and into Illinois. But well, going getting up into Minnesota for an AWA show. What was that like for you? It was uh, great because uh, I knew that from watching the show that um, Minneapolis was the headquarters for the, for the AWA, the Boxing and Wrestling Club, because I had, I had ordered photos from there out of the magazines. You know, they you order your eight by tens here, and I knew when they came. They came from Minneapolis, and uh, the Dykeman Hotel specifically was mm-hmm. the the headquarters from for the AWA at the time. And, Luckily, uh, my dad had a sister and, and, and her husband that lived in Minneapolis, and uh, we went up there for a family vacation one summer uh, in 1974, and uh, I already was fa- a member of the, the brigade, and uh, I had McCarsh's phone number, so I called him, and uh, I had never talked to him on the phone before, but I called him, and uh, um he asked me, he said, oh, I'm going to the TV tapings tonight. Uh, do you think uh, you'd like to go or would you be, you know, you think you could get there? I was like, would I like to go to the TV tapings? Are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, and be in the audience and uh, the, the, what I see every week on the, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so then I had to go beg my parents like, uh, is there any way we can go to the t- Mick's got a ticket for me if I can get to the TV taping. 
Well, you know, we, they wouldn't even take me across the river to see uh, the wrestling at home. And then here I'm asking them to take me somewhere unknown in Minneapolis, St. Paul. But it was it didn't turn out to be too far away out in Golden Valley at the mm. WTCN studios. And so uh, that was my first uh, chance to get there. And I, uh, I, I, you know what, if I'd have lived in Minneapolis all the time, I'd have been trying to get tickets every week to that. That was that was just great. And they wouldn't, of course, let you see the, the uh, interviews for uh, all the different cities, but you could see the ones for Minneapolis that night. And uh, so that that was great. And then that was my first chance to meet Mick, and I, I, I loved it. He was, of course, already well-known in the AWA. He had a lot of friends there, but uh, I was just awestruck. And then the very next year, I got to go to the convention there, and so I got to go to my first AWA matches in uh, St. Paul, and it, but it was at the old auditorium rather than the, the arena, and I, it was it was uh, very good. And a lot of seeing a lot of the, uh, Pampero Furpo was on the card, and Baron as a heel was on the card. It was and Billy Robinson. And, uh, the wrestler movie had come out in the meantime, and it was it was uh, it was really great. So I I, I loved it. <laughs> oh, I mean, and speaking of the the wrestler movie, I mean, you got to see it when it first came out here. I mean, I this did. was this was like, I mean, this was big thing too. I mean, to hear from somebody who actually got to go in during the first run of this this movie, because I mean, just been years later, a lot of people have seen it, but to have that theatrical uh, chance to, to check it out, that had to have been pretty cool to see your, fa- you know, the people that you were fans of being up on that big screen and. Yeah, Ed, Ed, Ed Asner and Vern Ganya, for God's sake. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, you know, looking back at it later, uh, you know, yeah, it didn't have a whole lot of a plot, and it was pretty campy. Uh, uh, but um, as a 15 year old kid looking at it, I, I thought it was great. And uh, uh, Elaine Giftos was the wrestling secretary, and she got to talk to you know Crusher and Bruiser and Billy Robinson, and she. Uh, got to arrange their flights and uh, talk to Ed Asner as the promoter. And Man, I wanted to be Elaine Giftos. <laughs> I, I was like, that's the job I want. <laughs> I was so naive, you know, that that's, that's really how they did it or something. You know, was, what was the magic was of it, though? I mean, but, you but were younger was, and you, you fell for, you, you were watching something and you were letting it take, you were just letting the story take over. I mean, this was exactly. passion. Exactly. And, you know, it did. I'm, my sister went with me to the movie, and uh, I think she wasn't a little less uh, <laughs> impressed than I was. She was, especially the way they ended it. You know, where it was oh, yeah. uh, the the drop kick, and you weren't sure whether uh, Billy got knocked out or not. But uh, it, it it I thought it was great, and you know, a lot of people say that Ed Asner put it down later, but I I actually got to talk to Ed Asner later in his life, and. Um, it was it was really great. I got to, I. He said I was the only one who ever brought up the movie The Wrestler to him when he was right talking about his book, which was about Hollywood and and the unions and things. That, um I said, you know, I, I loved that movie, and I and he told me all about his uh, friendship with Vern Gagne and how he had been. Uh, he had watched wrestling going growing up in Kansas City, and that he had known uh, Bob Wharton Sr. and uh, good friends with him, and uh, would really wanted to 
uh, participate in the in the wrestler movie, and he actually told, I don't know whether he was serious or not, but he, when I told him that that was my favorite movie growing up, he said, "Well, you got good taste." <laughs> so, <laughs> like, oh. so that meant a lot to me, and I, I was really happy I met him before he passed away. Oh, for sure, for sure. We're gonna bring Mike McCurdy into the conversation here to join us with our guest Joyce Pushkin. Uh, t- great book is called "My Ringside Seat to the AWA: My Photos and Stories from the American Wrestling Association." Mike. Welcome to the conversation. Oh, well, thank you, Glenn. Uh, first off, Joyce, I'd like to say that I really enjoyed your book. Um, for someone like me who does not know a lot about AWA, as it has been uh, stated earlier in the episode, it was a history lesson for me, and it allowed me to learn more about it along with you know watching documentaries and obviously the YouTube footage and stuff. So uh, thank you for you know the book and all that. I appreciate it. Like I said, it was a great read. I would like to talk a little bit about something, though, and that is Super Clash 3. Because me, <laughs> okay. me being a uh, you know I, the world class territory that's my thing and obviously you know Carrie Von Eric and Lawler and we all kind of know how that all went down but you were there what was yes, the, like yes. what was kind of like the environment like to be there because at the time this was supposed to be the big thing you know all you know AWA world class and all these groups together but in the end now we look back on it not the greatest product I guess you could say. Um, it kind of fell apart. Yeah, it it sounded good on paper, um, but it was the timing of it was uh, just that uh, not the, every every um, promotion was just barely trying to survive. They were and uh, not always doing a great job. AWA never knew from one uh, set of matches to the next whether who who what talent was going to still be there or not. Uh, it, there was just not a, a lot of consistency, except for uh, like the Ganyas. Um, but uh, and same thing for Memphis. Uh, Jerry Lawler was their strong star, and Kerry Von Erich being the world class uh, strong star. But uh, it just kind of didn't really work as far as bringing all the remaining territories together to to promote this because they all. I think each of the promoters wanted their promotion to be the highlight and uh, with it being in Chicago I think Fern thought it was uh, you know highlight the AWA but I think Longer thought it was going to be more of a uh, Memphis thing and uh, everything was about the money at that time so it it was um, kind of ill-fated I guess but I I was still very happy to have been a part of it because we didn't get that many pay-per-views at that time, and uh, to have a Midwest pay-per-view in the AWA and be allowed to to uh, be at ringside to shoot it, it was it was great, and I just took it for what it was. It kind of was one of the last uh, big cards that the AWA had. I it I everybody that talks about it says you know the payoffs weren't great and the the people took. Yeah, took the mad didn't didn't follow the script for the matches. I don't know. I don't know the behind the scenes stuff as much about that as I as I just knew. It. They had a, a good attendance and people were excited, but um, maybe too many matches and the matches didn't always make sense. It didn't hold up over the years. And uh, another thing I've you know I've talked to people that were there at the show and the other problem with the fact was that some people didn't know. Like, you know, the Memphis, okay, I want to see Lawler. 
okay, well, who are the AWA guys? Or the world class? Oh, I want to see Kerry Von Erich, Michael Hayes, Steve Cox. Well, who's that guy? A problem of it is, is a lot of fans, they knew their territory, but they didn't know a lot of the other territory. So it was kind of hard to kind of get into the matches because you didn't really know who some of the guys were. It was an issue for some of them. Yeah, I would agree with that because up until that time, the promoters hadn't really worked together to to uh, kind of highlight the other promotion stars. We were all rivals, and uh, all of a sudden they just expected that all the wrestling fans knew all the other territories' stars, and they didn't. So, so yeah, it was kind of a, a real mishmash of, uh, of of events, and I I think that there was a lot of bad feelings between the guys that were expected to put the other guys over there. So. Right, and unfortunately, you know, I mean, even though yes, he did represent world class, he was from Texas. Outside of Texas, in my opinion, a lot of other opinions, Kerry wasn't the huge star, and he's in Chicago, and also that was during kind of. I mean, his, you know, rougher years towards the end there and all that. And we all know that, yeah, Kerry may not have been the best uh, representative for World Class for the uh, world title match. But, you know, I guess it is what it is. Right, right. It, it was, uh, I'm not, you know, those, uh, for some reasons, like those uh, Super Bowls of wrestling cards just never really worked out <laughs> over the years. They, they, t- trying to get the territories to work together was was awful because they were just so used to only do, protecting their own stars and protecting their own territory and not trusting the other guys. So it it, it probably was still oh, faded from the beginning. The Pardon me. <laughs> I said yeah. In Texas, you always protect the Von Erichs. Yeah, today, right. I, nobody nobody talks bad about a Von Erich in Texas. No, it's not possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was great to see him before he went to the WWE, but. Uh, uh, it wasn't. I wasn't overly impressed with him, uh, and like you said, that might have been because of just the, the, the rough years for him, and, and the yeah, whole Von Erich family had uh, had issues. Uh, oh yeah, uh, amongst themselves. But the, you know, a lot of a lot of great stories that could a lot of great potential, a lot of great stories there, but maybe not not always the <laughs> the best role models. <laughs> Definitely, definitely. Um, another chapter in your book, and this one, this is the one that kind of gets me. You, you refer to it as the last hurrah, and Glenn kind of gives me a you know a little hard time about this because this is when I came into the AWA. <laughs> Literally, I got ESPN, very small town. Yeah, I lived in Northern California. We finally got you know cable, so we had you know ESPN. I saw AWA wrestling. I'm like, all right, cool. I've heard about the AWA. I want to see this. The first show I saw was the Battle Royal where Larry Zabisco won the AWA world title. Where it came down to him and Tom Zink, and then Zink was trying to pin him, and then it became where they threw him over the So it, I don't know. But that was my first exposure to the AWA, uh, really. And you refer to that as the last hurrah. Now, um, as a yeah, longtime I... fan, what was it like those end years? Because for I thought, hey, wow, this is great, because these are guys I had not seen before. I thought this was great television. You as a fan, you went through, you saw Bockwinkle and Matt Duggan and Heen and all that. How was that for you? Um, it, I mean, I wanted the AWA to still succeed in the worst way. I really did. Um, which is why I kept going and kept going. I, I, um, I liked the territory system, and I, I, uh, 
as you know, as as exciting as it was to go to a, a huge event at a huge arena with the pyrotechnics and the ring music and see it on national TV. And I'm not saying I didn't watch those. I did, uh, but I still enjoyed the local arena matches and uh, the the territory matches and sharing the the talent and having somebody in your territory for a, a length of time and thinking that they're going to still be there the next time. And I guess that's where, I, when I say the last hurrah, uh, it was more, you really didn't know from time to time who was going to be there the next time because everybody was just bailing out. Uh, and I, um, it, from like 88 on, uh, it just felt like so uh, the, there was so much substitution on the cards. And uh, once the uh, Minneapolis Auditorium closed down, I felt like, the inconsistency on the cards. They were only uh, showing at the major arenas. They weren't even bothering with the small towns anymore. And and Larry's, you're right. Larry Zabisco was a huge star, and I thought, and uh, I think he did a great job. But uh, I, they just didn't have enough stars to carry the whole promotion. Um, I'm glad to hear that you um, thought it w was still, you know, something you were excited to see. Um, I guess I, I was a little jaded in that what I had seen before, um, it wasn't at that level in my opinion. And, and that's probably because I grew up on um, Nick Bockwinkle and some of the, his cohorts or that time frame. And a lot of the guys that I grew up watching were ready, were ready to retire. Probably a lot of people would say even years before that. that. But uh, so it was a new crop. And it, it, the, my, my thoughts on that were that um, some of these guys are going to be great stars today, but they can't, they're not ready to carry the whole promotion yet. Um, so, and it was just easy to see that they weren't going to make it be, because some of the, some of the, um, crowds were just, uh, pitiful, so to speak. You know, you'd go into a high school gym and there were maybe 200 people in there. So you knew it wasn't going to be cost sustainable, uh, to keep running it and, uh, as it turned out, it wasn't. I mean, that for me, that team challenge series, uh, it maybe looked good on paper, but the way they executed it, it just didn't make sense in my mind. But uh, I, w I wanted it to succeed, and I, I, I wish it could have, but it just, com compared to the earlier days that I saw, I felt like it was a lot lesser product. Well, now that I've had a chance to go back and I said, look over, you know, YouTube and, you know, the stuff on uh, WWE Network, Working the documentaries, yes, obviously the product, you know, seventy classic AWA is great stuff, and like I said, for me though at that time, you know, that first exposure, but there were guys that you know, I, like you said, there were there were some names, but I was looking at guys like you know the Trooper, who obviously you know Del Wilkes went on to be you know the Patriot, and he had a pretty good run after that. I thought the Trooper was like because I was like. 15, 16 years old. I love the Trooper. I thought the Trooper was kind of cool coming out there and writing him the citation all that, but I could see as an AWA fan from way back how you would look at that and go, this is not my AWA, because, you know, world class is kind of the same way. You know, in the heyday, you had the Freebirds, the Von Erics, Chris Adams, you had Iceman, King Parsons, you had all that. Then towards the end, it was, the main event was like Eric Embry versus P.Y. Chuhai, and you had uh -huh. a very young Steve Austin. So unfortunately... That's kind of way with all the territories. 
you know, yeah, if you, if you look at it from the fact that you got to see some of these really young stars who went on to be really great later on, uh, it's amazing, you know, but uh, they, I think they just weren't ready yet, and uh, frankly, I only got to see the trooper once, you know, and uh, I, so I, I think I, he, because he sounds very much almost like a, uh, a, a type of a Sergeant Slaughter type character only uh, in the, in the, uh, trooper category but uh it could have easily been a big star and and i just didn't see him enough to um, really grasp what his character was going towards so i'm not i'm not saying your opinion was wrong it's when you see it you know you were seeing it as a new fan whereas i was seeing it toward the end of uh 20 years of watching and so that i guess i saw it as I'm not ready for these new young guys to take over, uh, but I think I was just de depressed about where it had gone. I can understand that. Like I said, as far as territories go, I think everybody has that. You know, because like I said, 89, 90, that was kind of the end of all the territories. But working on your book, as you're putting together all the photos and, you know, you're writing out the stories, you know, how is that like, kind of like you know, reliving the memory and getting to, to like look over all this stuff because I'm assuming some of these photos are pictures you hadn't seen in a while as you were putting this together. Yeah, yes, that's right. I, I mean, I had uh, I had done some um, photos about uh, four years ago um, where um, the wrestling museum was going uh, undergoing a, a renovation. And they had asked me to come up with a, a couple hundred photos uh, to put up on their wall, and so I had kind of got through some of what I thought were some of my best photos, but a lot of these other ones I hadn't really looked at at all. And in this project, I was trying to make sure I highlighted almost every star that had gone through the AWA when I, uh, when I was watching as, as, uh, as best I could. And, uh, I, I guess I, um, that was part of the, I really did start to relive some of it in my mind, uh, and, and uh, as I would be going through the photos, go, oh yeah, that was great. What a great story that was. And some some of it I came up. That's that's kind of when I came up with. Uh, I I wonder if fans would enjoy hearing that story. And uh, then, uh, but the the real trouble I had was I didn't want to end my end the book on such a down note of. And then the UWA died, you know, and and the rest is history. You know that the that so I. I I struggled with that is uh, because it was kind of a down period in my own life that when that when the AWA ended, I kind of felt like, well, that's over, and uh, I was dating a guy that I didn't want to be dating, and I go into that a little bit in the book, and so it it, uh, it was a bad set of memories in my life. 1990 was not a happy time for me, and so I, I kept thinking, well, I got to find a way to make this end on a happier note, or that. You know, there's life after the AWA, and that's so that I would talk about how I found these legends shows and got to reconnect with a lot of the guys and uh, still take photos, find a way to take photos, and find out some of the uh, people uh, still like the AWA and are seeing seeing the old tapes and and uh, and sharing that joy. So, it, um, I I hope I was able to turn that around and and have if people felt like it. Went, went, went on a down note in that chapter, which it did, uh, that I tried to end it on in a more up, upbeat chapter. And 
say that, you know, whatever um, time frame you came in as wrestling, that's the time you're going to remember the most. And that uh, it's all great. And enjoy those memories as you can because they will be lifelong for you. Well, as I've said, you know, it's, it's a great book. And as a historian, it definitely has a spot in my uh, resource library. So it helps to have a little bit of the history of the AWA. Now, for our listeners who are interested, how can they find you on social media? And how can they purchase your book? Um, I am on Facebook. And um, they can either send me a message through Messenger, or uh, which uh, under Joyce Postion, or they can send me an email at Joyce dot postin p-a-u-s-t-i-a-n at gmail.com and ask me about it the book is twenty dollars and it costs about six dollars for shipping and handling and uh, they can send me that through paypal or a couple people have sent me postal money orders and i accepted those um it's a a lot more expensive unfortunately outside the u.s to ship it but uh I am willing to do that if they're willing to pay the shipping fees. So, uh, but if they just uh, find me on Facebook, uh, um, and you can, you don't even have to be a friend of mine to, to send me a mess a message on Messenger. Uh, just say I'm interested in the book, and I'll give you the details there. Um, I may, uh, if I can find another place like Waterloo where I can have a table and uh, sell them right out, uh, I I'll, I will do that. But uh, not sure right now what that will be. But if I if there's an opportunity where I can do that, uh, I will, and uh, then I just do cash sales there. But um, just it's just starting out, and it's uh, it's happening, and then I'm trying to get it out as, to as many people as uh, want to read it. So been very happy with it so far. Once again, it's a wonderful book, and I'd like to thank you for joining us uh, on this episode of Wrestling Memories. And I'm going to pass the microphone back over to Glenn. Yes, yes. Thank you so much, Joyce. This was so much fun. And gosh, I, I'd love to have you back on uh, here uh, in the not too distant future. I mean, hey, come time around the holidays, you never know. They can get a few extra holiday orders here in a few months. You know, it's, it's always uh, it's never too early to start that Christmas shopping, right? Exactly. It makes a great gift for that old time wrestling fan in your in your uh, family. You know, if you don't know what to get grandpa, this would be perfect. <laughs> Oh, it's a great book. For for Joyce Posh and Mike McCurdy, I'm Glenn Broggett. You've been listening to Rasslin' Memories.